Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Cross currents in the economic data, in the virus, and in the markets as we look for direction. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. All in all, the markets didn't much like all those cross currents that they saw this week, with the S&P 500 having another down week and flirting with its 50-day moving average, while the yield on the 10-year Treasury moved up above 1.35, all in all, sort of a risk-off sort of week. To take us through what she's seeing in the markets these days, we welcome back now Sarah Ketterer, CEO of Causeway Capital. It is named the Morningstar International Manager of the Year for 2017. Sarah, thank you so much for being back with us. So give us your sense of these markets. What are they telling us? Markets are driven by liquidity. They always have been and they always will be. Liquidity is incredibly important for asset prices. And we've had so much of it. We've had an extraordinary amount of quantitative easing globally and out of necessity due to the pandemic. But tapering is now in sight. We don't know precisely when, but we know it's coming. And the Fed will engage in tapering, buying less bonds, and so likely will the European Central Bank. That's less money created. That's less rocket fuel for equities. And my, I think the Causeway team, we recognize that we've been through a very buoyant period and investors have been willing to pay almost anything to get growth. But now sobriety is setting in. And that's some of what we think is happening in markets and we've seen this week. So does that mean, Sarah, that a lot of equities are overpriced in your judgment, given all that liquidity? Uh, equities are all, it's just a question of where the alternative is. And with bond yields at, at infinitesimally low levels, that makes equities very attractive. But as yields rise, and they likely will, we don't know by how much, but if any of the inflation signals we have become more persistent, and or as the money supply is reined in, that's likely to put some upward pressure on bond yields. And that in turn makes the discount rate on stocks, which are just the present value of all the cash they can generate into perpetuity, it makes that, 
that discount rate higher. And as a result, valuations tend to come down. Stocks tend to derate. And the more long duration the stock, the more the cash flows that are promised far out into the future, those stocks will derate more. Just the absolute opposite of what we've seen in a tremendously exciting bull market. So, Sarah, there's a lot of talk about tapering, so-called tapering, both in the United States with the Fed, but also over in Europe as well. Sooner or later, they're going to have to take some of this liquidity out of the market, I'm assuming, right? Trees don't go to the sky. Uh, does it matter to investor when they do that, or is the more important thing that they will have to do it? Well, if we know precisely when we could be ex market timers and get all kinds of accolades, but we don't know, and nobody knows. And for that reason, it's very important to be very diversified. We at Causeway in our fundamental portfolios in international and global equity, we've taken risk off this year. We've seen a huge rally in cyclicals. In fact, equity markets just about everywhere have been led by cyclical stocks, financials, materials, industrials, with just a few exceptions. And those stocks have done really well in anticipation of economic recovery. So it's, it's time to bank some of that and, and go to more defensive areas. So, Sarah, one of the things I find fascinating is your idea that you want to invest in the least popular segments of equity. Uh, and one of them, for example, let's pick on Chinese equities right now. There's a whole lot of reasons not to invest in Chinese equities. What makes you intrigued, at least, if not attracted mm. to Chinese equities? No, that's why I wore red. I am... Um, <laughs> I think it might help. Look, Chinese equities are, uh, China has been under so much regulatory pressure, Chinese companies in the private sector, that they hadn't seen heretofore. And it's been happening all of 2021. It seems that one announcement follows another. And this has been very difficult for companies that had been lightly regulated. Some of this regulation, as we wrote to our clients and put on our website, is very appropriate, we think. It's more consistent to have have safeguards for consumers and for workers and so on in, in industries than what China had heretofore. It's just the capricious side and the unexpected that unnerves investors. So assuming that China doesn't make, the Chinese government doesn't make uh, miscalculations and become inconsistent in how they levy regulation and they make it very transparent, this could, I know this sounds a little bit uh, controversial, but we think it could end up being quite good for the market because it lowers the risk. It increases transparency and you can see, understand, and then invest around what the, what the constraints are for a business once the regulation is very clear. But what about that capriciousness? Because, I mean, you don't know, I mean, I, I don't know at least where they might wake up then tomorrow morning and decide, well, we want to go after that industry. Yes, and, um, and that's quite unnerving. The one that makes us most concerned was what happened in, in the for-profit education sector. The government after many announcements, there was plenty of harbingers that indicated the government wasn't satisfied with it, but they made them non-for-profit. That is, that is severe and jarring, and we understand the investor response. But there are some great companies in China that have such extraordinary balance sheets that they can pay fines to the regulator, they can make acquisitions, they can ultimately return a lot of capital to shareholders, companies like GD.com or Baidu in search, as well as in AI and cloud, that, that if you can just get through this period for investors, just don't, don't look, just own these companies because they will be great in the future. It's just very hard when there's so much negativity, especially in the press. And that's part of what we do. We take a much longer time frame in how we invest. But that is one area, China. And another area that's really interesting you didn't ask me about was, was what in the cyclicals hasn't hasn't rallied, and that is memory semiconductors. 
Those stocks have been a real drag for our clients here to date, and yet they're phenomenal. A consolidated industry, high barriers to entry. It's an incredibly capital-intensive industry, and the amount of memory chips that are used in our very data-intensive economy is skyrocketing. The demand is going to be higher than we've ever seen it. That's Sarah Ketterer, CEO of Causeway Capital. Coming up, we hear from the Dean of the Tuck School of Business, the number two B-School in the nation, according to Bloomberg Businessweek. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Business Week released its annual ranking of the nation's business schools this week. And number one, once again, was Stanford, followed closely by Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. Welcome now. It's Dean Matthew Slaughter. So, Dean, thank you for coming and congratulations. That's a pretty, pretty good performance there. Uh, give us a sense of where the business schools in America are today and how have they changed over the last 10 years. Uh, thanks, David. No, total team effort for Tuck as always. Uh, look, the demand what we see, Tuck, the, the interest in business education remains quite high. You know, this past cycle, our applications were up 11 percent. Last school year, they were up almost 10 percent, even amidst the turmoil of the pandemic. And I think what we hear from business organizations is they are seeking, as they have for quite some time, individuals who can harness information um, to articulate and defend points of view and environments of disruptive ambiguity and really motivate high-performing teams to bring those visions to life. Um, what's changed, I think, uh, is actually, I think both the organizations that hire students and the students themselves, they recognize the complexity of our world in the 21st century. Yes, you need analytical skills and functional expertise in, in finance and accountancy. And yet that probably was never sufficient, but it's definitely not sufficient in our complex world of the 21st century. I think the interconnected issues around wealth and health and sustainability organizations and students alike are seeking developing those integrative skills that are going to allow them to navigate through what I think rightly is increasingly called uh, uh, not just shareholder, but stakeholder capitalism. Uh, so, Dean Slaughter, I want to unpack a little bit what you do while they're in business school and then where they go afterwards. But before we get to that, just give me a little bit of the numbers. Uh, where are applications for business schools, and particularly for, for t- the Tuck School of Business? Where are you? Are they up, you're down? Where are you compared to history? Yeah, so compared to history, you know, a lot of business schools, there's always some cyclicality. So applications are slightly counter-cyclical with the strength of the labor market. Economists may all say that's because of the opportunity cost varying through time of leaving the labor market to earn a degree of any kind. Um, many schools go back a few years, saw a drop in demand, actually. That came a lot from international students that had a lot to do with rising supply-side competition in the rest of the world. There's good business schools come online more in the rest of the world. 
but we had talked in the past two years have seen strong growth in applications. They were up again over 11% this past cycle, 10, almost 10% the previous cycle. Part of what we're also seeing is an increased breadth in interest. I think if you go back to an earlier period, the MBA degree was thought to be sort of a finishing degree for people who had already been in certain firms or certain occupations in capital markets and in consulting. Um, but we see an increased breadth in recent years among the uh, prospective applicants for what they were doing in their post-college years before thinking about an MBA. So the class of our first year class at Tuck Now is a little under 300 students, 294 students. They came from 227 distinct employers in what they were doing before coming here to the Tuck School. So I think a recognition of the enduring value of an MBA, the communication skills, the analytical thinking, the self-awareness that are at the heart of management leadership in our world today, I think the breadth of interest that we see continues to grow. So, so I have a perception, which is not based on fact, just an impression now, that, that business schools changed over time that I used to think it, the graduates, the best graduates went to a McKinsey sort of consulting firm or to a Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. Then that evolved towards Silicon Valley, Valley a bit more on the tech side. Has the pandemic changed things at all? Because, uh, for example, I've talked to Albert Borler, who's the CEO of Pfizer. He said, boy, they, they just have so many people now wanting to go into to Pfizer. Yeah, so I think this, uh, one of the things that's terrific is the strength of demand for our graduates across a lot of industries. It is still the case, if I look at the recent years at Top, we've had very strong labor market performance for our graduates in terms of compensation and other measures. Um, consulting and finance are still very strong industries. So go, you know, recent years, I'd say about 40% of our graduates, their first step back into the labor market is consulting. As you said, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the BCG's, the EY's, a lot of great firms. About you know, 20, 25% going to capital markets. I think investment banking is still a foundational next step for a lot of people. Technology relative to 10, 20 years ago has surged in terms of their demand for MBA graduates as well. That's about 20, 25% as tuck as well. I think the other trend that we see is whatever that first step is back into the labor market for our students post-graduation, I think they're um, even more likely a few years beyond to think about a transition into some particular industry vertical that might be clean tech, that might be in health tech, or to take a step into entrepreneurship. So many of our tech alums are very successful entrepreneurs. Some do that at first step right beyond graduation, but many, like Sarah Ketter, who was with you before, Sarah's a great member of the tech class of 87. We have entrepreneurs who step into that um, new role of founding or joining some new business venture after they've done something uh, post-graduation. One of the things that we've covered an awful lot here at Bloomberg is some of the pressures being put on some of the younger bankers on Wall Street. And by the way, perhaps corresponding to that, the rapid increase in salary levels. Maybe they have to pay him more money. Are people more reluctant to go to banks or having getting paid much more money, are they more eager to go to banks? Uh, great question. I don't think they're more reluctant to go to banking. I think it's a couple of things. One is graduates, whether they're undergraduates going into those analyst programs or our MBA graduates, they want to receive a fair kind of market compensation for the skills they're bringing to their organization. And again, the demand for those skills globally continues to rise quite sharply. So they care about compensation. I think one of the changes, to echo on your earlier question, I think there's a bit more sense of our MBA graduates, definitely talking in other industries. They are devoted to their careers, and yet they want to have work that helps them live their lives, as opposed to sort of living to work. And so I think individuals are more seeking a match with an organization that thinks about the stakeholders that a global organization connects with, and they see the leaders in those organizations articulating values and taking stands on issues that um, are broad definitions of who are the stakeholders for these companies. And so I think that's a change compared to an earlier time. 
Our students then, what they want to learn in and out of the classroom reflects that. And I think the organizations that are recruiting our students, they need to present a value proposition for that. And I think that's really uh, exciting. I think it's going to help our world, you know, better the world through business as we echo our mission statement at Tuck. So I have no doubt that you don't have any shortage of applicants to Dartmouth Tuck and by the way that they go on to really successful careers. But is that equally true throughout the range of business schools? Is there increasingly sort of a sorting uh, of the top schools really doing extremely well? And maybe in the middle range, maybe it's not such a good investment, frankly, to go to business school. Yeah, boy, great question. Um, like a lot of other industries we see, I think there is a sense where some of the more successful organizations, they're seeing strong demand. For us, again, the demand is joint between the prospective students and the organizations that hire them. And I think some of the um, organizations in the past were quite good, and yet in sort of a general growth market, which was business education in the last part of the 20th century and the first maybe decade of the 21st century, they were able to build programs and have them scale, especially as the rest of the world was recognizing the value of an MBA. But you're definitely right that in recent years, there's been more of a quality sorting, and every organization, tuck no different, has had to be very clear about what is its particular value proposition to the market and what, what it thinks it's delivering on. So we speak of a personal and connected and therefore transformative experience here at Tuck. Um, making sure that we are uh, delivering on that is, is why we wake up every day. And I think MBA education, like a lot of other industries, there's been this competitive dynamic that you point to. So it, it keeps us um, waking up every day and listening even more intentionally to our students to our great faculty, to the organizations that are part of our ecosystem. That's Dean Matthew Slaughter of the Dartmouth Tuck School of Business. Coming up, Blair Efron of Centerview Partners on what the C-suite thinks about the tax debate that's going on in Washington. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Build Back Better. That's the promise presidential candidate Joe Biden made to voters over a year ago. It's time to reverse the priorities in this country. When the federal government spends taxpayers' money, we should use it to buy American products and support American jobs. And that's the plan President Joe Biden laid out to Congress starting last March. But from the beginning, he insisted he would not just borrow to get it done, that we had to figure out how to pay for it. The investments I'm proposing will be fully paid for over the long term by having the largest corporations, including the 55 corporations that paid zero federal tax last year, and the super wealthy begin to pay their fair share. And this week, we got some specifics on just what it will take to pay for what the president wants. It may not be as dramatic as the fashion statement made by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at the Met Gala this week, but it still would be the most sweeping set of tax increases in nearly 30 years, including raising the top rate on personal taxes, increasing taxes on capital gains, and imposing a 3% surcharge on anyone making more than $5 million a year. And it's not just individuals who'd get hit. The top corporate rate would go up to 26.5%. There'd be new levies on overseas corporate income. And the carried interest break so beloved by private equity would get cut back further, applying only if you hold the asset for at least five years before you sell it. Not surprisingly, Democrats and Republicans see these proposals very differently. With Brian Deese, President Biden's chief economist, claiming the corporate tax changes would bring more investment onshore. So I think that the core values the president has put forward is reverse the most negative impact of the Trump tax cuts and get this 
corporate tax reform right so that we are encouraging more incentives to invest here domestically. While Republicans warned these hikes would make American industry less competitive. Here's Kevin Brady, the ranking chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. They'll be crippling for Main Street businesses. Certainly they'll land on working families, but as importantly, we're going to drive U.S. jobs overseas. Uh, and, and this is trying to fight our way out of the pandemic. It is the biggest economic blunder I've ever seen a country make. Well, whatever the politicians think about tax hikes, what do the people who will have to pay them think? Will they affect the way they do business? Welcome now someone who deals in the real world with real CEOs who make the decisions to drive the real economy. Blair Efron is co-founder and partner of Centerview Partners. Blair, great to have you back with us. You talk with CEOs all the time. You can understand why they might be nervous given what we just heard from President Biden saying, we're going to pay for this by making sure the largest corporations pay their fair share. Are CEOs concerned about this? So what I would say is this, I think there is enough tail end in the economy that um, we'll be able to do this comfortably. Let's have a little bit of historical perspective. Uh, Donald Trump cut taxes $2 trillion. Uh, if you look at the impact of that, uh, also negligible, in fact, you go back to the second term of President Obama, compare that to uh, the Trump three and a half years before COVID. Fundamentally, uh, under Obama, the market was up 9% more. Uh, growth during both periods is around 2.5%. The point is, I just don't think it's going to have a meaningful impact. Also, let's keep in mind that during COVID, uh, tremendous wealth has been created. The top uh, 10% have created uh, $10 trillion of wealth. Uh, I think the idea of uh, a tax uh, increase particularly where half of it is corporate and uh, only half is personal, is something we can handle. Now, of course, the key, very importantly, the key is that it is done for investment. And when we talk about infrastructure, be it physical or human, where the money gets applied, I think, is going to really be the most important question we have. And to the extent um, we really are focused on the physical side, water, airports, railroads, electric grid, that's a good thing. On the human side, to the extent it really goes to uh, caregivers who can get back to work, to the extent it goes to education, uh, therefore getting more skills for uh, future employment, also a good thing. And we have a lot of, as I said, a lot of tailwind in the economy done right. This hopefully will keep uh, that tailwind on a much more sustainable trajectory. So, so Blair, I don't want to be too cute here, but I noticed a couple of things you didn't mention in there. Things like Medicare for the elderly, for vision and dental uh, help, things like uh, earned income tax credits and child tax credits. Because if you look at like the Penn Wharton budget model, they say those things don't improve productivity. The things you mentioned, Blair, do. So do you draw a distinction? Do CEOs draw a distinction between investment in something that's going to increase growth? I think we all draw a distinction. David, very fair question. We all draw a distinction. I think out of $4 trillion that we're talking about, you can... And again, that number will change, and we both know that. Um, let's assume that, at least what I've seen, two-thirds of it actually is investment-oriented. Uh, if you look at the uh, almost $6 trillion already spent, clearly when you get 6.5% growth last quarter, you can assume directly uh, uh, because of the tailwind that created. And I also, again, do think that given how well so many have done, uh, the idea of shared prosperity makes sense because really the goal here is to keep our economy growing. That's Blair Efron of Centerview Partners. Coming up, we wrap up. 
Coming up, we wrap up the week, as we always do, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to conclude our week as we do every week with Larry Summers of Harvard, our special contributor here on Wall Street Week. So, Larry, let's start with all of the back and forth on Capitol Hill about the budget, about taxes. This week, uh, we've had a group of Nobel laureates in economics write a letter saying they think it makes good sense to invest and, in fact, it won't be inflationary. What did you make of that letter? I agree that we absolutely need a bill that contains substantial public investment, and I was glad to see the letter. I think the letter could have said more. It could have warned about inflation expectations becoming unanchored unless we pay for the investments we make with revenue increases. It could have stressed the importance of designing those investments so that they're maximally uh, effective with benefits uh, exceeding uh, costs. It could have very usefully warned against uh, budget gimmicks uh, where you only pay for investments for a limited uh, period of, uh, of time. Yes, we should and have and need to pass a major investment in the future of our country bill, but especially after the indiscriminate spending early this year, we need to do it in a rational, disciplined way. So, Larry, you mentioned inflation particularly, something we've talked about pretty much every week now. We got CPI numbers in the United States in this week, and they came in a little lower than people expected. Some people breathe the sort of collective sigh of relief. Uh, are we out of the woods yet, or is that premature? I think it's way premature. The labor market still looks extraordinarily tight. The most interesting number of the week to me was the New York Fed survey that really shows pretty clear evidence that both one-year inflation expectations and three-year inflation expectations may be becoming uh, unanchored. If you did the things that the inflation doves have done month after month, and you looked at uh, median inflation or you took out the outliers, the figures this week actually looked uh, more ominous relative uh, to uh, history. So we're not going to know yet, but the data flow, whether it's housing, 
whether it's more and more anecdotes in more and more places of supply chains, whether it's direct measures of expectations, looks increasingly concerning to me. Uh, so, Larry, it seemed to be a week for letters. We not only had the Nobel laureates writing in about the budget, we also had Leon Panetta, former uh, Secretary of Defense, and other former uh, national security officials writing it's a letter saying we've got to be careful about applying or expanding antitrust when it comes to our tech companies because China's taking a very different course. China's embracing their big tech as what they call national champions. What is the challenge for the United States in both being competitive globally in tech but also making sure that our big tech doesn't get out of control? You know, this is going to be a big process challenge for the Biden administration, for Brian Deese, the director of the National Economic Council, for Attorney General Merrick Garland, for National Security Advisor Jake uh, Sullivan. Uh, we've got to figure out that on the one hand, there's much to worry about coming from our tech companies on privacy, on market concentration, on what they're doing to uh, the nature of our public uh, dialogue, and we need public policy there. But they're also our national champions in important respects in key areas of competition around uh, the globe, what uh, Secretary Panetta was stressing. And we've got to make a policy that integrates those realities. And frankly, our national security establishment isn't used to thinking about the first set of realities, and our economic and antitrust policymakers aren't used to thinking about the second set of realities. And so the government's going to need to find a way of bringing them together so that we can craft uh, the right uh, nuanced policy. I think it's a hugely important area, and I think so far we've probably had too much in the way of sloganeering about uh, some of the risks on both sides. And we really need a very thoughtful and serious policy process that brings together different parts of the government that aren't usually in dialogue with each other. Uh, Larry, uh, you, of course, co-chaired a G20 panel to address how to really avoid the next pandemic. You have a piece out in the Washington Post this week. We have the United Nations General Assembly coming up next week. Uh, give us a sense of where you are in that process. Uh, you compare it to sort of Bretton Woods, a new version of Bretton Woods. U.S. leadership really got Bretton Woods done. Do we have that kind of U.S. leadership this time? I'm encouraged by what President Biden has said and by the meeting he's convening. Um, We've got this set of meetings this week and next week, and then we have a G20 meeting that'll take place at the end of the October. So I think the potential is there. But look, I want to take a big picture view on this, uh, David. We've been celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Something very important has happened. We haven't had a major terrorist attack again. That look, that's a great victory relative to what people expected on September 12th or October 12th of 2001, and we should give credit for that. But at the same time, I think with the 20-year Afghanistan war, with the Iraq war, with various changes that have taken place in the United States, people see many elements of overreaction and excess. I am worried that 20 years from now, 100 million people will have died in pandemics, and the world's climate will have been radically altered. And the concern will not be overreaction, but underreaction 
to what I think are an immense set of security challenges. And so I think there's no danger we're going to overreact to the pandemic threat or the climate threat. And there's enormous reason to fear that until we start seeing these as top national security challenges, that we're going to fall way short. Finally, Larry, I'd like to get one quick thought from you on something I know you've dealt with before, and that's the debt ceiling. Uh, we now are back up against that in Washington. It's not clear exactly when we'll run a of it, sometime late October, maybe November 1st. We had Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, this week calling up Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, saying you've got to do something about this. He said basically it's up to you. What do you make of this debt ceiling? Why do we have the debt ceiling? Does it make sense? Are we dealing this in a, in a sensible, rational way? No. Um, as an investor... I would uh, hold treasuries because you're going to see a lot of stupid posturing and games, games of chicken in Washington. But I have every confidence that this will be worked out and the United States will uh, honor its uh, debts. As a former Treasury Secretary, I empathize with Secretary Yellen, who's going to probably have a sleepless night um, or two along the way and is going to be involved in all sorts of uh, posturing that's uh, necessary as she explains what is and uh, what isn't uh, possible. Uh, this is an area where I think everybody just needs to uh, grow up. No one's really in doubt that when we've borrowed money, the United States is going to pay it back. And so this whole ritual of pretending that we're going to block paying it back, I think, is a fairly sorry spectacle for our country. It diverts enormous amounts of political energy that could go to solving real problems rather than artificial and contrived ones like the debt ceiling. Okay, Larry Summers Harvard, thank you so very much for being back with us. Larry, of course, is our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. What could you buy for $300 million? That's how much California spent this last week on its recall. And that's before you count the $70 million that Governor Gavin Newsom spent to keep his job. But in the end, it turned out it wasn't even close. Here's uh, we are enjoying an overwhelmingly no vote tonight here in the state of California. And it's not like it hasn't happened before. We all remember back in 2003 when Governor Gray Davis lost his job only 10 months into his second term. But he had a lot of challenges. So let's be frank, they'd had the collapse of the dot-com bubble, which had really hit California. And even back then, they had a lot of wildfires. Everyone running for office in California is well aware that uh, the people in California have the first and last word. And if you don't like that, well, don't run for office in California. Run someplace else. So you can't moan and groan. It's just part of life in California. And, oh, oh yes, Gray Davis was up against a formidable opponent in the Terminator. But then again, Gavin Newsom, in some senses, was running against a different kind of celebrity in the form of our most recent president. You either keep Gavin Newsom as your governor <coughs> or you'll get Donald Trump. California has made something of a tradition of trying to recall its governors. In the roughly 100 years they've had the statute for the recall, they have had no fewer than 55 attempts to recall the governor. Yes, if you're doing the math, that's roughly one every other year. But in all that time, only two have actually made it to a formal election. Uh, Gray Davis, that we talked about, who lost, and now Gavin Newsom, who won. So if you're keeping score, it's roughly 
one and one at this point. Gavin Newsom, the current governor, has some ideas about what to do with that $300 million. If you look at his most recent budget for the state, he proposes, for example, doing away with the entire backlog of unemployment insurance claims, and also maybe forgiving all of the traffic tickets issued to all low-income residents in the state for the last six years. And the price tag for either one of those? Well, it just happens to be, yes, you guessed it, $300 million. So you make the call. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.